our world. Nobody truly knows where it came from or how it got here. Of course, we all have our own opinion of what or how it happened. Everything from a bunch of chemicals that happened upon each other and blasted us into a planet perfect for us all to live on to it being the work of perfection of our creator. Nobody knows exactly when this happened or how old the world actually is. Some say millions of years, while others argue that it's only a few thousand. The inhabitants of this old world, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed some pretty unbelievable historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from serial killers to weird creatures that show up and destroy their lives. The worst creature of them all, though, just might be man himself. I, being born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond the pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. This old world outside of these mountains has seen its share of it as well. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey around the world for we seek out things that are not always as they seem, and history is not always as what we've been told. I guarantee it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. Thank you for your time again today. Welcome to our first episode of World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. These days you hear the term ADHD or something along those lines to describe a child that is energetic, curious, and rambunctious. Back when I was a little feller, we didn't hear of anything like that and had never heard of it. The only prescription we got for being a little bit rowdy was a good switching. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a such thing as ADHD nor anything else they're describing in our children today. And I sure don't know enough about it to have an opinion either way on it. I can say this. If I or my brothers were little fellers today, they'd have to come up with a lot more than just ADHD to describe us. And I do know this, though. There are legitimate issues that need to be addressed in some cases, and to ignore these hurts and or can destroy the lives of not just the person afflicted with the problem, but to anybody else and maybe everybody else they come into contact with throughout their entire lives. Come on in, take your shoes off, and set a spell. I'll tell you about one such case. Marjorie Congdon was born July 14, 1932. Though records are sketchy, most think in Tarboro, North Carolina. She was adopted at about three months old by Elizabeth Congdon, who was the heir to a taconite mining fortune. It was thought by some that Elizabeth may have went out and done a bit of lollygagging one night, as we used to say, wound up pregnant and been a real mother of Margie, who to start with, but uh, there were no records really to prove that. But when you're an heir to that kind of a windfall, you got yourself some means to pull off something like that. As most of the time, the upper echelons of society, eh, we all know that appearance is about everything. 
on the way home from the adoption. Elizabeth brought little Marge by her parents' house to, in the complete utter shock of their friends and family who were just sitting around in the living room one day, probably listening to the Lone Ranger on the radio. When Elizabeth pops in and says, oh, by the way, I have a baby. You can imagine how that went over. When Marge was three, her mother, who apparently hadn't sent her family and friends quite over the edge yet, adopted Marge's sister named Jennifer, who Marge pretty much completely ignored. She also ignored the people around her and never had any friends. She'd just like to sit off in a corner somewhere all by herself and play. Marge, by all accounts, was a spoiled, rotten little brat and grew accustomed to getting anything she wanted the very instant that she wanted it. Her mother continuously showered her with gifts. It sounds to me like Christmas Eve every night and Christmas Day every day at the Congdon house, don't it? But when Marge turned 12, any time that she got feeling like she had been slighted on having everything that she wanted or even dreamed of having, she just started stealing money out of her mother's pocketbook. She would take the money and go on a spending tear through town creating inflation all over for us poor people in town. Because I guess Christmas no longer just came every day, it's supposed to come every hour or two now. Now, believe it or not, there are folks out there that act like they ain't ever heard the word enough. They don't know what it means because maybe they never heard it used on them or something. I'm not sure. Looks like Marge is one of these folks. I don't know if she ever heard the word no either for that fatter but uh, her mother finally caught on to what she was doing and rather than put a stop to it she called the stores and told them not to sell anything to Marge unless they had expressed written permission from her to do so I just gotta wonder at this point how she finally found out Marge was taking the money did she reach into her pocketbook to get a $50 bill out to light a cigarette with and there was nothing there or what but so what did Marge do at this point, now that her mother had put a stop to that little scam? Well, never underestimate the resourcefulness nor the determination of a person that's a laser focused on getting what they want, as Marge was. She started writing out little permission slips herself and signing her mother's name to them, just to keep going on. I know you're all wondering, what does mom do now? With Marge now 13 years old, her mother being tired of all the conniving, she figures that she needs to do something about all the problems being caused by Marge. So, she goes out and buys Marge a horse named Greyhound, who she loved, for about a month. Then Marge told her mom that she didn't want him anymore because she didn't want to take care of him. It was just too much work. I guess her mom didn't take the wonderful little child too seriously because she didn't do anything. About a week went by when one of the stable workers saw Marge tamping a load of oats down Greyhound's gullet. He very politely told Marge that Greyhound didn't look that hungry right now and maybe she should come back and try feeding him later. Marge was shocked and surprised to see him there, stopped what she was doing and st stared at him with her eyes big as saucers. She then dropped the oats on the ground and ran like a scalded dog for the house. So, he cleans up the mess only to find the oats loaded with some kind of pills. He immediately went to Elizabeth about what he had found. She told him that 
Well, she would handle it. So, by now, Mom's had it, right? Well, a few days later, Greyhound was sold, and nothing more was ever said about it. So, Marge skates on that one, too. Marge was then sent to a very expensive boarding school in Massachusetts. Elizabeth thought that the school could focus on her in the right direction. In other words, out of sight, out of mind, I suppose. Marge came home from school for the summer and picked right up where she left off and cleaned everything but the dust out of her mother's purse. The store in that area remembered what her mother had told them and refused to sell anything to her. That's when Marge threw a dying duck fit right there in the store and had to be dragged out, kicking and screaming all the way. Later that day, the store mysteriously caught on fire. I guess lesson learned. Next time she comes in, sell her something before the whole store burns to the ground. In 1949, Elizabeth finally thought that there just may be a small problem with Marge. So she had Marge committed to the Kansas Medinger Clinic for psychological diagnosis. Because some people, I guess, you just can't reach. Marge was diagnosed as a sociopath. Now, Elizabeth, having the means to pay for treatment and all, apparently didn't have the will. As something like that back in that area, era would just look bad in the press. So Elizabeth just ignored it and brought the little monster back home. In 1950, Marge enrolled in Washington University in St. Louis, where she met Dick LaRoy, who she married on June 30th, 1951, and they moved into a mansion in Minneapolis. Now, Elizabeth could carry around some folding money again. Ain't that nice. Just let somebody else deal with the bad bug for a while, I guess. Marge soon gave birth to her first child and bruised, busied herself with uh, being a wife and mother as well as renovating the whole mansion, which took about two years of perpetual nonstop construction and wasn't by any stretch of one's imagination cheap. Then she was obsessed by making the picture-perfect family, stopping at nothing to make everything appear absolutely perfect. The best clothes, the best silverware, you know, the best of everything. The heck with keeping up with the Joneses. She was the daggone Joneses. This, folks, wasn't cheap either. 26 years old now, she received a first trust fund that her mom had set up for and went through it like a drunken sailor in Hong Kong brothel. Her spending was a major problem, as Dick would see the charges on the credit card and ask her about them, and she would blame it on her mom. I don't know why the rich heiress Elizabeth would need to steal her credit card and make charges on it, but that's what she claimed, so that's what she told him. Now, Dick knew Marge was on line because he asked Elizabeth about it as they both laughed at Marge's cute little lie. Elizabeth was giving Dick money to keep him afloat with Marge knowing it, not knowing it. So in 1960, and now being married nine years and having seven children, Marge became obsessed with redecorating a mansion with antiques from the 1800s. Dick tried to put the brakes on it all, saying that they couldn't afford that. How dare he say something like that to Marge? Because about two weeks later, Dick took the children on a day trip and was gone all day, having all the fun with the children that he could figure out how to have. They came home that evening laughing all the way to find a 
every stick of their furniture in the whole entire mansion ripped, torn, cut, and chopped up and demolished completely to several piles of rubble scattered through the house. Marge stood there with a hammer in one hand and knife in the other, completely straight-faced as the dust fabric and feathers still hung in the air, and said, well, it must have been the dog. Dick, of course, didn't believe a single syllable of it, but at this point, what was he going to do? Either go without furniture or let Marge file an insurance claim pay for it. Of course, she used the insurance money to redecorate the entire mansion in 1800s antiques. No word on what happened to the poor framed-up dog who probably slept through the whole mess. Her next obsession came in 1962. That's when she became completely obsessed with figure skating and enrolled all the children in it. Yes, all seven of them. She spent outrageous amounts of money on the costumes and equipment and made the kids practice, even pulling them out of school to do so, all the while bribing the principal to keep his mouth shut. She was obsessed completely to the bone with it. She even sabotaged the other kids so hers could win. Skates would come up missing just before a big show. She dulled the blades of a competitor's skates to the point that she fell and dang near broke her neck on one of them. She would sit in the stands and yell at competitors, calling them names and denigrating their performance like she was yelling at an umpire for a wide strike zone at a baseball game or something. Poor Dick saw the kids didn't actually want to do this, and it was beside the fact that it was running their finances into the ground. He thought that it was actually hurting the kids to put up with the wackadoodle anymore, but Marge wouldn't quit. They were going to do it, and he was going to foot the bill and like it or else. Finally, else came. He had as much of the moon bat as he could possibly take and filed for divorce on August 29, 1971. And just as the divorce was being finalized and apparently everything was going well with the split, the mansion caught fire and burned completely to the ground. Nothing was left standing, just a smoldering hole in the ground. Well, what do you know about that, folks? It was ruled as arson and the police knew it was Marge, but that had burned it down. But as long as she hadn't filed an insurance claim, it wasn't illegal back then to burn your own house down. She never filed any insurance, and she could burn it down if she pleased. So she did. She then moved to Colorado to start over again and to get as far away from that man as she could, I guess. She moved with four of the children who were still lived with her. God love the figure skating little hearts. Just a few months later, her mother, Elizabeth, suffered a major stroke and was left paralyzed on her right side. Marge finally got out to visit her mom in November of 1973 and brought with her some nice homemade marmalade, which she said that her mother always loved. She made mom a nice marmalade sandwich and asked her to eat it with her, you know, all the while knowing that her mom suffered from debilitating diabetes, which had caused her stroke to start with. Her mom refused, but her in-house nurse told her that one marmalade sandwich wouldn't hurt her and that she could have it if she wanted so they sat, ate together, and how sweet. A mother and daughter spending time catching up over a nice marmalade sandwich. Then Marge left, taking the rest of the marmalade with her since her mother couldn't have any more of it. Now, 
The next morning, nurses couldn't wake Elizabeth up. She had fell into a coma sometime over the night. The doctor was called and was able to revive her. And thinking it was a blood sugar problem, he tested her blood and found enough tranquilizers in her system to kill a horse. By then, there was no way to prove who'd done it, so, so it was just let go. So Marge skates again. Now being lonely, Marge began attending Parents Without Partners meetings where she met the walking train wreck, divorced alcoholic Roger Caldwell, who had drank up every single solitary thing in his life but the shirt on his back. They were married on March 20th, 1976, after knowing each other for only two whole months. Of course, we know where this is going, don't we? It didn't take Marge long to drive the finances into the dirt again, and that long with, along with Roger's constant drinking, got old by June of 1977. So Marge went to a doctor. God only knows how, but somehow got a prescription for an abuse, which she poked down Roger to keep him off the sauce. Now, for those who may not know, an abuse is a medicine that when taken, if you drink while on it, let's just say you get really sick. Marge then hired a lawyer to look into her mom's estate to find out if she was still in the will. Then the bed bug turned directly around, sat down and wrote her own will, giving half of everything that she didn't yet have to Roger, should anything happen to her. Then on June 24, 1977, Roger flew into Duluth and stayed in a hotel there. During his stay there in Duluth, doggone if somebody didn't break into Elizabeth's house and was confronted by her nurse, who was promptly beaten completely to death with a candlestick. Then the unsub, as they say in criminal minds, swandered into Elizabeth's room and snuffed her out with a nice satin pillow. Then swung by the jewelry box, took valuable jewelry and coins, and then walked right out the front door into the night. Roger woke up the next morning and flew back home. Six days later, on June 30th, 1977, he and Marge had returned to Duluth for her mother's funeral and were staying in a hotel room. By then, the police had found out about Roger's trip to Duluth and had confiscated an envelope that was mailed from his hotel while he was in Duluth. The envelope contained a valuable coin taken from Elizabeth's jewelry box and had Roger's fingerprints on it. So they got a search warrant to search the hotel where Roger and Marge were staying. They found every single solitary piece of missing jewelry and that had been taken from Elizabeth's room the night of the murder stashed away in the hotel room. Huh. Looks like things are falling together pretty well for the police, don't it? Huh. Maybe just a little too well, if you ask me. Roger had left the hotel room during the search, went straight to the closest bar that he could find and got so drunk that they had to rush him to the hospital for alcohol poisoning. He was released, left the hospital, was arrested, taken downtown, and charged with two counts of murder. In September 1977, due to the events so far, Marge's own entire family sued her for the wrongful death of her mother, so that tied up the $8 million fortune for the time being. Meanwhile, Roger claimed he was framed. He said that if he'd done it, why in the world would he have been so dumb as to take all the loot back to the Duluth with him and keep it in the hotel room? That's a real good question, Roger. But the police didn't give a hoot. They, it didn't matter in court either. The poor man was found guilty and sentenced to two life terms. But the police weren't done yet. 
Three days later, they went to Colorado and arrested Marge for murder and conspiracy to commit murder. This is going to get good, folks. I'll be right back. You're listening to World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, telling Marge to keep her mouth shut, which is what the lawyers did, was like holding your hands up trying to stop a hundred-foot wall of water. Marge played to the jurors and gave interviews to the press. She sat in court doing her knitting. Shoot, she even brought a chocolate cake to celebrate the lawyer's birthday and gave everybody in the whole courtroom a piece. She took the stand and played the meek little innocent housewife and victim to a T. In short, she was acquitted of all charges on June 21, 1979. Marge only visited poor Roger one time when he was in prison. I guess so she could laugh at him on the way out. She immediately started an affair with Wally Hagen, who, along with his wife Helen, had befriended Marge during the trial. Wally's wife suffered from Alzheimer's and had been put into a treatment care facility only days after the trial ended. On March 26, 1980, Marge showed up at the treatment facility and told the family that at the facility that she was Helen's daughter. And since Helen was about 20 years older than Marge, they bought the lie, and even <clears throat> though it was after visiting hours, she was allowed to visit her mother, so to speak. She was seen feeding Helen something from a jar just before she left. My guess it was the leftover marmalade from her mother. Helen fell into a coma during the night and couldn't be awakened the next morning. She died on March 30th, just four days later. Her death was attributed to dehydration and pneumonia, and there was no talk screen performed. Just another dead geezer, I guess. A week later, Wally came by to see his daughter Nancy, at which time she announced that he and Marge were now an item as Marge sat in the car staring in the window like a messenger of death. Wally's daughter worked sometimes two jobs to help support her father Wally, and she soon found out he was behind on almost all of his bills, again with the finances going into the ground. Finally, August 7, 1981, Marge and Molly were married, despite him being 23 years older than she was and that she was still married to Roger. She was immediately charged with bigamy in North Dakota, but not living in North Dakota, and knowing that they wouldn't come to get her for that, Marge couldn't possibly bring herself to give less of a crap about it as she stood in the window and thumbed her nose at him. In 1982, the couple decided that they wanted to move to a lake house, so they decided to sell their current home to finance the move. The Larson family, who bought the house, wanted to move in right away, but Marge was able to put them off long enough to finish renovation that she was doing. They came back to find that the horrible-looking work Still wasn't done, and the whole house smelled like varnish. But a very rainy, on a very rainy September 15th at 6.30 in the morning, they started moving in. Just as they did, a neighbor noticed that the house was on fire. By the time that the fire department got there, the whole place was engulfed, and no amount of water even seemed, even the rain seemed to come, even phase the fire at all. The only thing left standing was the bottom part of the fireplace, which was found to be completely packed full of newspapers. It was deemed to be arson, and they knew right where to look. They searched Marge's new lake house and found gallons of highly flammable varnish and 
insurance claim papers filled out for the burned house. Marge had been turned down by the insurance as it wasn't her house anymore. I guess she didn't think that that went through very well, did she? They cuffed Marge and took her downtown. She was later found guilty of arson and sentenced to two and a half years in prison and fined $10,000. She served 21 months and was released on good behavior and settled with the rest of the family in the lawsuit over her mother's death for $1.4 million, which she was relieved of by her lawyers, who were owed even more than that. All the while, the good Wally had waited for her, and he's still there. So while all of that was going on, Roger was working on getting himself out of prison. He had a whole team of lawyers who managed to prove that the fingerprints on the envelope which sealed his fate wasn't even his. To make a long story short, he was offered a plea deal where he would be released with time served so that the DA could salvage some remnants of the case that nailed lay in ruins. He took the deal and danced right out the front door of the prison and went to get himself a drink or 12 to celebrate. He moved back to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where he was originally from, and tried to live his life, which he just couldn't do without the drink. So that led to him beating his various girlfriends and keeping him in trouble with the law, with the fact that he couldn't find a job due to, number one, his reputation as a killer, and number two, nobody wants to deal with a sore-eyed drunk. So after drinking everything in his life up yet again, the poor man finally killed himself. No, there was never any proof that Marge had anything to do with it. By this time, Marge and Wally had moved to Ahu, Arizona for a while, a whole fresh start. Again, they appeared to go about normal life until, yeah, there's an until. Again, all of a sudden, fires start breaking out all over the neighborhood. Every one of them was deemed to be arson. Police had absolutely no idea who could be doing it. There were 16 different fires set in Marge's own neighborhood. Can you believe it? Then on March 24, 1991, a neighbor named Mark Evnick was having trouble sleeping. He sat up in his bed and noticed his good, nice, sweet neighbor Marge walking her dog through his backyard. He didn't mind that and must have thought that's nice and peaceful. But... And there's always a but. Just as he got ready to lay back down and try to catch a few winks, Marge twisted herself right up to the front door like a decrepit old child-eating witch and left his bedroom window, lifted his bedroom window up, stuffed a kerosene-soaked rag halfway in and closed it back down on top of the rag. Now, it would appear that the sociopath isn't satisfied living a peaceful life with, like the rest of us or among the rest of us, she has to burn it all down, literally. So Mr. Envick called the law and decided that they may have a line on the local fire bug and decided to leave the rag hanging in the window and stake out the place. They stationed cars all around the neighborhood to see what would happen next. After a little while, a police officer who was sitting directly right out front of the Mr. Envick's house saw the wackadoodle Marge come out of her house dragging her poor dog by now probably wants to just be left alone to sleep and dragging him along on a leash she traipsed herself 
just as straight as a human being could walk right up to the rag, which was still hanging in Mr. Envick's window, struck a match, and set it on fire as the officer took pictures of the whole thing. Mr. Envick was also taking pictures from inside the house just in case the cop's camera didn't work. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear the narcissistic lunatic try to explain this one. Mr. Envick had forgot to turn off the flash on his camera. That scared the heck out of the pyromaniac who made a break for it, dragging her poor dog along as she tried to run. She was pounced on, subdued, and arrested, and her poor little dog, worn out, was taken home. Police searched the bed bug's house the next day, finding gallons upon gallons of kerosene and pounds upon pounds of rags identical to the ones stuffed in Mr. Envick's window. And to beat it all, Marge had a whole cigar box of strike-anywhere matches in her pocketbook when they took her down. Despite her claims of frailty and inability to even strike a match, and that the police had planted the matches on her, she was found guilty of arson, since Mr. Envick was in the house, also guilty of attempted murder, too, and sentenced to 15 years. About the time some karma come call it, I think, isn't it? Now, Marge was able to plead to the judge that her husband, Wiley, was in poor health and needed her help, so he allowed her 24 hours to get her stuff together before starting her sentence. At about 1 o'clock that very same day, just after she got home from court, a police officer walking by her house noticed the smell of natural gas coming from the house. He knocked on the door and asked her if everything was all right, to which she answered, Why, yes, officer, I was just using the gas stove to cook some lunch for myself and my husband, who now has his belly full and is taking a nap. Yeah, I bet he has had a gut full. And I bet he is taking a nap, don't you? Anyway, three hours later, the ward on the rear of society makes a call to Wally's son and tells him that Wally died while taking a nap. When he asked her if she called for help, he, she hung up the phone on him. He immediately called the police who rushed over to find a dead geezer laying on the bed. Marge said that he'd committed suicide. So by now, not believing a single utterance that came out of the heathen philosopher's mouth, they tore the whole house apart searching it and found a hose laying out in the yard by the back door and that had been cut to the perfect length to fit from the gas stove to the bedroom where Wally took his dirt nap. That along with the neighbor that said that she'd watched as Marge tediously measured out and trimmed the hose and took it into the house. So the police did the math, the old school way, of course, and came to the conclusion that Wally had been smothered to death with gas. Marge then immediately amended her first statement. What a shocker, huh? When you're a moonback crazy, you think they'll believe anything that rolls off your tongue, so you bark off an impossible scenario complete with a stone face of denial. And Marge now claimed that they had a suicide pact and that after Wiley died, she just changed her mind, decided that life wasn't that bad after all and that dying just didn't look like all that much fun to her. She was charged with murder and dragged downtown yet again. All of this taking place in a matter of hours after being sentenced to 15 years. But, and there's that but again, 
since she was going away for a long time and there was no way to really prove that while he hadn't committed suicide, the charges were dropped and she was off to prison for the love of Mike. Of course, Wally had left everything to her and she even sued his family for half the poor man's ashes and danged if she didn't win. So there she sat in prison with half a geezer on the shelf beside her. Of course, she was a model prisoner again and was released on January 5th, 2004 after serving 12 years. Now at 72 years old, she moved to Tucson for yet another fresh start and used the funds from Wally's estate that hadn't been run into the ground yet and to get herself a nice condo and a dog named Blueberry that she could drag around on a leash should she decide to start fires again, I guess. By this time, being her age and after living her entire life in complete unadulterated turmoil, it was time to just settle down and live in peace, right? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? That's when she met a man by the name of Roger Seamus, who lived at the nearby nursing home. They became very close friends, sitting around Marge's condo, flashing their porcelain grins at each other, drinking their coffee, and going on walks with Blueberry. And wouldn't you know it, in fairly short order, she was the executor of his estate, overseeing all his finances. God in heaven have mercy on him. Then on March 1st, 2007, Mr. Seamus was found dead, and as the executor of his estate, Marge had him cremated so fast that his body hadn't even assumed room temperature yet. Then left the crematory where she watched him make sure the poor man was chunked into the flames and went straight to the bank and tried to transfer $10,000 from his account to hers. The bank put the quietus on it and called the police who arrested her for fraud and even took her dog away to, from her again, huh, taking it to a home for greyhounds. She claimed that she didn't know that her power of attorney ended when he died, but took a plea and was sentenced to three years probation. She went back home where all of the neighbors talked about her behind her back like she was a narcissistic pyromaniac lunatic, whack-a-doodle that she was. She even then goes out and adopts another dog named Raja so that the police will have another one to take away when she's arrested again. Well, now being 78 years old, Still on probation and still pro prone to having obsessions of anything that she wants. When she wants it, she requested a sentence modification so that she could move into an assisted living facility due to her failing health, as you can't do such a thing if you're on probation. The pure, poor now thing now claimed that she could no longer get around and her sight was so diminished that she could be dangerous and to live alone. Why, she may accidentally set fire to the place or something. The judge heard her claim, and after he stopped laughing in his chambers, came out and threw it out of court. Somehow, after that, a miracle happened. The moon bat was healed of all of her health problems, and she had and was able to continue living in the condo just fine all by herself. She's now 89, is said to be in very good health and still living independently. She can still be seen walking her dog and mingling with the neighbors who still take the blade to her behind her back. After all, who would want to risk being set on fire if she knew what they were really saying? Yes, she's still in the same condo she moved into after her release from prison, living the dream, never serving a single day for murder, and sadly, 
never being treated for mental illness either, which is what makes it so sad. So far as I can tell, she hadn't killed anybody or burned anything down lately, but I'll keep an eye out and update you accordingly. Maybe she's finally just a too daggone old to actually strike a match now. And that's the way it currently stands for Marjorie Congdon, the walking dumpster fire, and Roger her dog, too. I hope you enjoyed hearing our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. Of course, you'll be following Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend to get this World of Murder Mystery and Legend podcast, which runs along within the same one. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report, which comes out as I collect enough of the stories to make an episode, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month. Just go over to anchor.fm and have a look at it. You've received extra episodes of all three podcasts, and they're all ad-free. Just join us on Facebook, too, at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another episode of World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. I'll see you then.